0: MacCast, Sunday, January 16th, 2022. Hey, MacGeeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for MacGeeks by MacGeeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to another episode of the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week in Apple. News, information, tips, tricks, all the goings-ons in our community. And uh, I guess we're starting out the show in a new way in the new year. Hopefully you're having a great new year so far. Mine's not going too bad. And looking over the show notes, it looks like Apple's got some things brewing as well. We have a number of things to talk about, including supersized iPads, maybe? Yep. And Apple looking a little more sporty. We've got headset things to get into. I'm going to talk a little bit about ProMotion and what it might mean for the next iPhone. I'm going to get into third-party payment platforms in the App Store. Yeah, some news to talk about there. And then it looks like less of us are doing some of our upgrades. And Apple is deciding to do something about that. Maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that, and then we're going to get into some listener uh, questions. We actually have a couple people we need to help out this episode. We're going to get into uh, iCloud Private Relay and um, some issues that have cropped up this past week. There, we're going to try and help someone out with their AirPlay and specifically screen mirroring, and then uh, backups. A uh, little issue with SuperDuper that actually rolls over into an interesting conversation about uh, Spotlight and a potential problem that could be brewing on your Mac that you might want to check out and look into. So it should be a good episode. I say we just dive right in and uh, start off talking about maybe an iPad Pro Max? Yeah, large-size iPad. You want something bigger? A Korean website, the Elec, is reporting that one of Apple's Chinese OLED suppliers for iPhones, BOE, is looking to build 15-inch panels that could be used for future iPads. Now, we've heard this before from Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. Uh, he said that Apple engineers have been toying with the idea of even larger iPads, but so far, it's just been experimentation at this point. Uh Apple hasn't really pulled the trigger or decided to pull the trigger on anything yet. Now, the Elect piece notes that the larger iPad displays is just a project and it's in its early stages of development. So that seems to back up what Bloomberg has been saying. 9to5Mac also reported that their sources say that Apple is investigating larger displays for iPads and they are also developing designs that may have a notch to match the iPads visual identity with the identity of other products like iPhones and the newer M1 MacBook Pros so kind of going all in on the notch design. Now still these reports all are making it very clear that these ideas are still in R&D land and there's no knowing if Apple will actually ever bring a larger iPad to market. Personally, I feel like the 12.9 inch iPad Pro is already pretty huge. If you've ever used one of those, it is a big slab of glass. And I'm not really sure how a 15 inch model would be received by the market. Are there a lot of people out there looking for an even bigger iPad? I would imagine there might be some who would enjoy an even bigger screen, possibly uh, making the iPad more of a laptop replacement. If Apple were to do it, I think they would need to expand further on iPad OS, bring out more features, more functionality, better support for multitasking, maybe running multiple apps. Maybe we even start to see them allow Windows on the iPad, more like a traditional Mac operating system. At that point, I don't know. It starts to kind of blur the lines a little bit more. But I'd be curious to know what you think. I, I think artists would love a larger iPad. So there's probably some specific applications. I just question how big that market might be. But if this is something that excites you, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And what would you use it for? What would you want them to do with it? Shoot me some feedback, maccast at gmail.com. Now, the other thing to note about this piece is we are talking about an OLED panel for iPads, which is something Apple hasn't done yet. We have iPads with mini LED backlighting. We've heard reports that Apple wants to eventually get to micro uh, LED displays, but OLED's been a thing that they haven't brought forward yet. And that's likely because Apple's requirements and standards for OLED are said to be pretty high. And as a matter of fact, the elect this week even notes that Apple has given up on bringing an iPad with an OLED display to market this year. It was something we were expecting them to maybe do, And we had had reports last year that they were working on trying to uh, do deals with suppliers to bring OLED to the iPad, but it looks like that might not happen now. And as a matter of fact, this backs up earlier reports made by Ming-Chi Kuo that there would be a delay in getting OLED onto iPad. Now, the issue is said to be that getting enough high-quality panels to meet Apple's standards at a price that Apple would be willing to pay just isn't happening right now. Still, the report goes on to say that Samsung may be able to meet Apple's requirements by 2024, so it's looking like we're a couple years away. And uh, for that, they would be using their next-generation manufacturing process, which is obviously going to take a little bit of uh, a little bit of time for them to be able to spin up. Now, in addition to larger displays, we're hearing plans that Apple wants to bring MagSafe wireless charging to the iPad as well. This was something that last year Mark Gurman had said Apple would do by maybe bringing an all glass back design to the iPad to facilitate bi-directional wireless charging and MagSafe. Now 9 to 5 Mac this week claims that their sources say the idea for an all glass backed iPad have been scrapped, possibly because it would make the iPad more prone to damage and breaking something Apple is a little bit worried about. Now, the new idea that's coming about in this report is that a larger glass Apple logo would be added to the back of the iPad, and that would allow for the wireless charging. They would also be adding in larger and stronger magnets for better alignment and faster charging than is currently available with MagSafe in the iPhone. The piece also says that this year's iPads will have larger batteries an iPhone 13-like camera module, and possibly that they would use the rumored next-gen Apple Silicon, the M2 processor. And then finally, for iPads this week, we are still expecting an update to the iPad Air sometime soon. The iPad Air 5 is in the works, according to Makatakara. They said it could arrive alongside the expected update to the iPhone SE this spring. As far as what it will feature, they claim it will basically have the same specs as the recently updated iPad mini, an A15 Bionic, the 12 megapixel ultra-wide front-facing camera with support for center stage, 5G connectivity, and it would reportedly keep the same design that they currently have. And they don't mention whether or not they would be updating the colors, although I imagine. They would do at least that, kind of give us a new color scheme to differentiate the last year's iPad Airs from this year's. But we'll have to wait and see on that one. Probably not much longer. We are expecting a spring announcement of some products. uh, So stay tuned for that. Seems like Apple TV Plus is eyeing sports again. Uh, We've heard this all before, and I have the feeling that Apple never really stopped pursuing live support. Live sports, rather, for Apple TV Plus. But a couple of stories this week indicate that Apple is getting pretty serious about trying to bring live sports to their service. A report from the New York Post mentions that Apple is in, quote, serious talks with the MLB about bringing live baseball to the Apple TV Plus service next season. There is not a lot of specific details, but the theory is that Apple wants to pick up weekday national games, which were recently given up by ESPN. Now, it's not mentioned in the piece, but hopefully if Apple were to get this deal, I would hope that they would add this as part of the existing service without any additional fee, although I suspect they also could offer it up as some sort of add-on package. Uh, that wouldn't feel as as great, and specifically if they're not getting like a full... MLB deal, it feels like it should just be an add-on at this point. Now, Wedbush Wedbush analyst Dan Ives also came out with a report claiming that Apple is on a, quote, aggressive hunt for live sports content. He backs this up with the belief that Apple has not acquired a movie studio yet, and so live sports content could be seen as the next path uh, for growth on the service and i would assume it means that they haven't spent a bunch of money on a on a new studio so they have some extra cash to invest in sports content now his note goes on to say that apple is quote ready to spend billions on live sports content over the next 4 years and we'll see contracts for content from the nfl sunday ticket or see them pursuing contracts rather from the nfl for sunday ticket Uh, looking at a bunch of NCAA sports packages across the entire range of sports and the NCAA, NASCAR, and also NBA and WNBA deals, among others. Apple has also been making a big push in recent years to beef up their services offerings, and Apple TV Plus, of course, is playing a bigger part in that. Apple this week pointed out the success of the TV service, uh, noting that their TV shows and films in the first two years of service have garnered 736 award nominations and 190 wins. Now, the awards and nominations are continuing this week, with Apple gaining 12 SAG award nominations. Nominations came up for the films Coda and The Tragedy of Macbeth, and the TV series Ted Lasso, and The Morning Show. Apple TV Plus also received five Writers Guild Award nominations for the series Ted Lasso, The Morning Show, The Problem with Jon Stewart, Helpsters, which is one of their kids' programs, and Calls. Turning to some of the new content we're expecting to come to Apple TV Plus, Apple added a new upcoming movie about the 90s Beanie Baby craze to its list of upcoming Apple TV films, the movie is called The Beanie Bubble and will star Zach Galifianakis, Elizabeth Banks, Sarah Snook, and Geraldine Viswanathan. Sounds like it's basically the story of the little-known women who helped drive the Beanie Baby craze in the 90s. If you're interested in their real story, you should check out the HBO documentary Beanie Mania. The screenplay is based on the book The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Delusion, and The Dark Side of Cute. The movie will be produced by Apple Original Film and Ron Howard, Brian Glazer, and Karen Lunders Imagine Entertainment. No word on when the production is set to start or when it will arrive on Apple TV+. And then Apple also announced a new four-part documentary series about Abraham Lincoln that will arrive on Apple TV Plus on February 18th. It's based on the award-winning book, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, written by historian David S. Reynolds. Apple says the series will be a, quote, fresh exploration of President Lincoln and the complex journey to end slavery. It will be narrated by Jeffrey Wright and features the voices of Bill Camp as Abraham Lincoln and Leslie Autumn Jr as Frederick Douglass. Let's talk a little bit about the power of Apple's upcoming AR VR headset and of course by that I literally mean its power adapter. Yeah, an odd new tidbit to the Apple AR VR headset rumors this week but Ming and a note said that Apple's upcoming headset would use the same 96-watt USB-C power adapter as the 14-inch MacBook Pro. With that much power, I assume it means a pretty substantial battery, and that could prove challenging for the weight of the device. That might be why last week we talked a little bit about Apple kind of saying that the headset wasn't really designed to be worn all day, like, say, the Metaverse product from Facebook. Um, He also, in his note, Ming-Chi Kuo repeated his information about the processors that would be in the unit. He said that it will have two custom Apple chips, one 5-nanometer and one 4-nanometer, with the main chip being comparable to Apple's M1 and the other a little bit, quote, lower end to handle the headset's many sensors. Quo thinks that the first version of the headset could see as many as 3 million units shipped by the end of 2023. He also feels that Apple will have a more competitive second generation of the product and that headset numbers could ultimately rise to about 20 million shipments by 2025. Now, those numbers could be delayed a little bit if reports from Bloomberg turn out to be correct. They say that despite wanting to launch the product at Worldwide Developer Conference this year, it's looking like that might not happen. They claim sources close to the project have told them that the device is having camera and software troubles, as well as issues with overheating, which obviously can't be good. Because of the development issues, it looks as if Apple may hold off on announcing the product until maybe later this year, or might even delay it until 2023. Now, Bloomberg still thinks that Apple could offer technical previews of some of the software features that would drive the new headset, and that is because those features are expected to kind of be added to iOS 16. So in theory, uh, they we could start to see support for the headset, and there may be some indicators at this year's Worldwide Developer Conference. The headset itself is reported to have its own operating system, though, called ROS, or basically Reality OS, with the codename OAK. And then there is possibly some good news coming out of, of this report about the pricing No, unfortunately, it's still going to be way expensive, but Bloomberg does note that Apple is targeting price points, quote, above $2,000, which is a little bit better than the $3,000 US we had been hearing from previous reports. So still going to be pricey, but maybe not quite as pricey. ProMotion or not ProMotion, that's the iPhone 14 question, at least this week. Well, that and some camera news, uh, the punch pill, and a little bit more. First, we have Haitong International Securities analyst Jeff Poo claiming that all iPhone 14 models this year will have a variable refresh rate 120 hertz ProMotion display. This report then was later contradicted by display analyst Ross Young, who has a pretty good track record. He claimed in a tweet that the ProMotion tech would remain an iPhone Pro-only feature. The main reason, he says, is that the supplier of displays for the lower-end devices, BOE, just doesn't have the production capacity at the moment to support the ProMotion displays. So you have a little battle of the analysts going on when it comes to maybe some future features of this year's iPhone 14s. Now, in his report, Pooh goes on to talk about some other features that all models of this year's iPhone will have, one of them being six gigabytes of RAM. That was previously only in the iPhone 13 Pros, so that would bring all of the models in line he also brought up and reconfirmed the existence of a 48-megapixel wide-angle camera for all models. That was a report we had from Ming-Chi Kuo and some others last week. It was also mentioned this week by TrendForce, so this one is starting to feel likely, though I believe Quo only noted the feature along with 8K video support for the Pro models and that Apple would use pixel binning to let the lens shoot in 48 megapixel or 12 megapixel, depending upon the situation, uh, because cramming more pixels into the same size sensor doesn't always yield the best results in all situations. Specifically low light, you'd want the lower megapixel. So uh, they can handle that using this pixel binning technology. As for losing the pesky notch on the iPhone this year, we have heard a lot about different ways where Apple might accomplish that. We've talked about punch hole. We've heard about the pill shape hole. How about the hole plus pill design? That's what we're hearing this week from display analyst Ross Young. He says that Apple might just do both and uh, put a punch hole and a pill-shaped hole into the display. This would seemingly allow Apple to ditch the notch but maintain a unique look for their devices, something that's not going to match, you know, other Android phones that are on the market. I think it is also important to remember exactly what is behind that notch. There's a lot of sensors that Apple has to give access to. You've got the infrared camera, you've got the flood illuminator, you got the proximity sensor the ambient light sensor the microphone the front camera and the dot projector now we had heard rumors that this might all come under with some under display technology and they would just use say the punch hole for the camera but it's looking like that's not the direction apple is interested in in moving in it's also possible that face id under the display just will not be a thing in this year's iphone with apple going for this new unique look uh, if it is a punch pill, I actually wonder how the UI will once again be adapted to compensate for that. Uh, will they use the extra space to bring back some of the missing or lost UI elements like the battery percentage? Will we still have the pull down zones to the left and right of the notch for things like notifications and control center? Um, uh, a lot of unanswered questions about this, and I just don't know if a pill and hole design is going to be all that much better than uh, just having the notch. I I just really don't have a problem with the notch anymore, and it's surprising to me that we're moving in this direction. I would think having a hole in a pill there, especially in like full screen video mode, would be even more distracting than the notch, or Apple's still going to have to just do the thing where they put black bars in there to compensate and sort of block that out so you don't see it anymore, so I'm not sure I see the advantage uh, I guess other than uh, as was noted by by uh, Ross Young that hey it's gonna be a design aesthetic that Apple can kind of glom onto, but considering the fact that we've heard them adding notches to other products, maybe even the iPad and they just added it to the MacBook Pro. That seems sort of like Apple's signature at this point. So I'm not sure why they would ditch that this year on the iPhone. But that seems to be where the rumors are pointing to. And uh, we'll have to wait and see what Apple actually does this fall. Apple is starting to allow third party in app payments, at least in countries where they are now being forced to. And of course, there are some interesting caveats. First, let's start with South Korea. They passed a law about four months ago that said that Apple and Google must allow developers to use third-party payment platforms for in-app purchases. Apple will provide an alternative payment system at a reduced service charge, though the timeline and the amount of that reduced fee have not been discussed yet. Google, for example, only reduced their fee by about four percent. Apple said they will be working with the Korea Communications Commission to bring themselves into compliance. Apple also said this week that they would comply with new regulations in the Netherlands that require them to allow third-party payment options for in-app purchases within dating apps. Apple will still charge a commission on the transaction, but they did add two new entitlements available to developers, of dating apps in the Netherlands that will enable them to provide additional payment processing options. This means that for apps that are not exclusive to the Netherlands, developers will actually have to maintain two separate app binaries, which will be a little less convenient. And Apple does note that for purchases made through the third-party payment platforms, that they will not be able to assist developers with refunds, purchase history, subscription management, or other issues. Apple is obviously not very happy about having to comply with the new regulations, and they are currently appealing the decision up to higher courts. So we'll have to wait and see how this turns out, but I have a feeling Apple's going to be facing this in more and more locations, and we're just starting to get a glimpse of how Apple is uh, maybe going to handle it. What's very interesting to me is that they don't seem to be coming down too far on the service fees, so I'm not really sure developers are ultimately ending up with what they really want beyond it being able to just offer a different payment service. So I don't know. What do you think about this? This is a little bit weird. Uh, Obviously, it's creating more challenges for developers. I'm not really sure that Apple is going to make it very easy or affordable for them to use third-party services, and ultimately a lot, I think, are just going to opt to go back to using Apple's system if this is how things are going to play out. Uh, Apple's not going to just bow down and make it easy for developers to basically bypass their fee uh, unless they're absolutely forced to, and maybe we'll see some adaptation to some of these rulings to kind of force Apple's hand even further. But this is interesting to see how this is playing out now that it's actually happening. I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on this. If you have any, shoot me some feedback, maccast at com. And then finally in the news for this week, Apple has said on their developer website that iOS 15 is installed on just 72% of iPhones released in the last four years. That number is actually lower than previous iOS updates, and one thing that was different this year that may be contributing to that is that Apple was allowing customers to stay on iOS 14 and still receive security updates. It now looks like Apple may have changed their minds about that, though. Previously, Apple had a note on their software update screen encouraging users to update to iOS 15, but stating that if they chose not to, they could remain on iOS 14 and still get security updates. That language apparently is now gone, and it appears that iOS 14 users may no longer be able to get security updates. This happened after the release of iOS 15.2.1 last week, Apple seems to have pulled the iOS 14.8.1 update uh, from iOS 14 users, at least according to 9to5Mac. Now, it's not 100% confirmed that this is indeed the case, and it could be just that it's a bug, but it sure does feel intentional. Apple has always touted their high upgrade percentages to their developers when a new new iOS comes out, and I'd guess that they're not super happy about the numbers being this low and maybe wanting to force people's hands a little bit. Uh, We'll have to stay on top of this and see if this is exactly what's going on, but right now, this is sort of what it looks like. 9to5Mac is also reporting that it seems as if noise, ca- the noise cancellation feature for calls which was available through the accessibility settings has been removed for iPhone 13 models, or at least it seemed that way. At first it seemed like it might have been a bug, but a 9to5Mac reader working with support was told that phone noise cancellation is not available on the iPhone 13 models, which is why you don't see the option in settings. So it reportedly has never been there on iPhone 13 models. Now, they didn't give a reason as to why, but simply stated that the feature is, quote, not supported. As a possible workaround, 9to5 notes that you can still activate the voice isolation feature on a call in the control center. So, uh, don't know if there's some sort of technical reason why this isn't there on iPhone 13. If you have an earlier model, uh, you can get this feature. So uh, we'll probably dive into this a little bit more. Maybe someone in our community knows uh, why technically this might not be possible, but Apple isn't saying anything this at this point, and uh, it is a little bit strange. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a couple show sponsors, starting with our sponsor, BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You can check them out at betterhelp.com slash maccast. You know, the best way to think about therapy is likely through a bunch of analogies. For example, we get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get annual checkups and go to the gym to maintain our physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores regularly, uh, some of us, to avoid giant messes around the house. Going to therapy is like all of these. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. Going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It just means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not in your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and MatCast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com. Slash Maccast. That's B E T T E R H E L P dot com slash Maccast. And a big thank you to BetterHelp for their support of the show. This podcast is also sponsored by Simply Safe. If you've ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there's no better time than now. Right now, our friends at Simply Safe are giving Maccast listeners access to their New Year's holiday deals, 20% off their award winning home security, and your first month is free when you sign up for the interactive monitoring service. Our Simply Safe system has all the sensors like motion sensors, entry sensors that we need to monitor our home and to feel safe. Having the indoor camera especially helps me because it lets me monitor the living area and that's awesome. Plus, I can use my iPhone and iPad to check in anytime I want and I get motion alerts. Plus, what I love about the system is that it can easily grow by adding new sensors like the new outdoor camera or a smart lock. The setup is super, super simple and fast too. Very easy to set up. Simply Safe has Everything you need to make your home safe. All monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. Simply Safe was even named the best home security system of 2021 by US News and World Report. And you can easily customize your system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations. There are no long-term contracts or commitments and it's a really easy way to get a bit more peace of mind in the new year. Hurry and take twenty percent off your Simply Safe system and get your first month monitoring for free when you sign up for the interactive monitoring service. Visit simplysafe.com/slash/maccast again. That's simplysafe.com/slash/maccast for twenty percent off your entire system. And a big thank you to Simply Safe for their support of the show. If you have iCloud and iCloud Plus specifically, there is a new feature rolling out called iCloud Private Relay. And there was some confusion about that feature this week that sort of played out like a he said, she said between Apple and T-Mobile. Uh, the feature, iCloud Private Relay, which is currently in beta, has been rolled out and you can enable it, but the issue came about when some users after upgrading to iOS 15.2 noticed that the feature for them was disabled. This was specifically on T-Mobile, I think, and also possibly AT&T. T-Mobile said it was likely due to a bug in iOS 15.2, but then Apple came back and claimed no, that it wasn't a bug uh, and more just some confusion over the language and just how the service actually works iCloud Private Relay is available, like I said, to iCloud Plus subscribers, and it's designed to protect your privacy by ensuring that when you browse the web in Safari, no single party, not even Apple, can see both who you are and what sites you're visiting. The way it does that is it runs your requests through two different and separate secure internet relays. One is Apple's and one is a third party's. One of those is designed to hide your IP address, so no one knows who you are. And then the other server is the DNS. That is set up in a way where it's going to hide what websites you're visiting. So without those two bits of information, it makes it much harder to track you around the web. So really cool feature. But what happened this week was when some users went in to check their settings... They saw a message that said, quote, private relay is turned off for your cellular plan. Private relay is either not supported by your cellular is not supported by your cellular plan. With private relay turned off, this network can monitor your interactivity and your IP address is not hidden from known trackers or websites. And so, of course, that caused a few people to panic. Uh, it led some customers to accuse T-Mobile or AT&T of not supporting the feature And Apple and T-Mobile later clarified that this is not the case, and it's more likely that the user possibly disabled the setting in the cellular settings. So if you go into settings, cellular, cellular data options, you need to double check that the limit IP address tracking is enabled if you want to use or you have enabled iCloud private relay, and that will enable the feature for your cellular connection. The thing about iCloud Private Relay is that it can be turned off on a network-by-network basis, and that's when that message that we noted earlier might appear. So you need to actually check the setting after enabling uh, iCloud Private Relay in each one of your network areas. So for each Wi-Fi network, for your cellular data options in the network settings. So uh, what? likely happened was people had enabled it maybe for their Wi-Fi, but it just wasn't turned on for their cellular network. And that's maybe where some of the confusion came into play. So the thing the thing you want to first do is you want to enable iCloud Private Relay to turn it on. You actually go into settings click on your name, then go into iCloud and then go under private relay to enable it. And then once that is turned on, like I said, you can go into the cellular settings and turn it on for your cellular cellular connection. You can also turn it on for the Wi-Fi networks that you connect to by going to settings, Wi-Fi, and then tapping on the more info button for the Wi-Fi connection you want to have it enabled on. And then just double check that again, the limit IP address tracking is is enabled on that connection. And you need to do that for each connection you want to use iCloud Private Relay on. So all of that was just a little bit of confusion. Uh, I hadn't really used the feature yet, so I wanted to talk about it here because you may have missed these settings as well. And Apple, for their part, is also updating the messaging on that toggle to make it a little bit clearer that it might be a settings issue and not just your carrier not supporting iCloud Private Relay. So they're adding a little line that says, you know, in addition to it maybe being your carrier not supporting it, it could also be that you've turned off the feature in cellular settings and that language should make it a little bit more clear and put a little less blame on uh, on potentially on the carrier. Now, there are some instances where your carrier might not support it, and specifically for T-Mobile, they have a feature of their service where you can turn on parental controls and set up parental control settings on their network. If you turn that on, they will disable the iCloud private relay because they can't do what they need to do uh, to block websites and to protect your children if they can't see where they're going. So obviously those two things are in conflict. So in that scenario, they would disable it. But in general, both AT&T and T-Mobile came out and said, no, you know, there's no carriers that are just blanketly blocking the iCloud private relay service. Um, So that's not something that we need to really worry about. I have a couple of AirPlay questions this week. Uh, Rick wrote in with an issue that he ran into when he was trying to use AirPlay mirroring with his Samsung Smart TV. Actually, he first had a question about the differences between AirPlay and screen mirroring. Uh, He noted that he could AirPlay content from his iOS devices. That was working fine with his Smart TV, but actually doing the screen mirroring with his Mac didn't. And so... Hey, what's the difference between these two things? And Rick, I think the easiest way for me to explain it is that AirPlay is used to stream audio and video content from an app to an AirPlay device, like your smart TV or an Apple TV, um, anything that would support AirPlay, AirPlay 2, technically. And uh, you would typically access that option from the AirPlay button in the player or via the AirPlay button in the control center. And at that point, just that app's content, either audio or video, is the thing that's being streamed over AirPlay. Screen mirroring is actually accessed from the display menu item on your Mac or from the screen mirroring button in Control Center on your iOS device. And for that, it actually mirrors your entire device's screen to the TV. So the entire display, anything that goes on on that display is going to get mirrored. So if you jump out of the app into the, you know, springboard, the la- the app launcher, you're going to see the app launcher on the screen. So that's the main difference. You know, they're kind of similar. You could, you know, mirror your screen and play video content. Um, I think it plays a little bit better if you uh, stream it directly. Uh, there tends to be a little less issues because you're passing, I think, less data across. But You know, both work, but they are a little bit different in in feature, but they feel similar. So I can understand how it can be a little bit confusing, one versus the other. Now, the reason Rick, it turns out, wasn't able to mirror his uh, device, his Mac, to his smart TV, was that he also, and this is a great security thing to do, uses Apple's built in firewall. He had that enabled, and uh, he found that if he turned it off, then it actually worked. And ultimately, he went back in because he wants to use the firewall, turned it back on, and then went in and specifically set up permissions for the specific services and apps that AirPlay needs to be able to make inbound connections and got everything set back up and working that way. So Rick kind of troubleshot his own problem, which I always love here on the MacCast, but I did want to talk about some of the options and settings in case others in our community might have run into this issue. And you could run into this with other apps, things that you're trying to do if you're using Apple's built-in firewall. But luckily, there's a number of controls and things that you can do uh, to make sure that you can have the firewall on and you'll still be able to connect and use a lot of the built-in services and functionality of the operating system or services that might be available even on your third-party apps. And I think one of the easiest ways to ensure that all of your Apple stuff works is there's actually a setting called automatically allow built-in software to receive incoming connections. So you can have the firewall on, but you kind of say, hey, anything that is built into the operating system, anything that's Apple, go ahead and allow that through the firewall. And it's a simple setting. So you can set that up. And then if you want it even more tightly controlled, if you want to say, no, I don't want Everything in the OS to be able to go through, you can go in and add individual apps and set up their settings for either allowing or disallowing incoming connections. So, to set all this up, uh, once you've enabled the firewall, you would go into the settings, uh, system preferences. So, open up system preferences, click on the security and privacy preference pane and then click on the firewall tab. You're going to have to click the little lock icon down in the lower left corner and authenticate with an admin login to adjust the settings. Um, But then again, you would need to have the firewall turned on. So if it's not turned on, you'd have to actually turn it on at this point. But assuming it's on, you can double check all your settings by making sure that you've unchecked the block all incoming connections option, because if you do that it is basically just going to blanket block everything unless you're actually allowing individual things through. Um, so you probably want to uncheck that. And then you probably do want to check on the allow automatically allow built in software to receive incoming connections that again, if you want, you know, the operating system, basically everything that Apple has running to work, you can do that. And you may also want to check on the option for signed software to receive incoming connections. Those two things, um, you know, are basically saying, hey, apps that are signed by the developer that I get through the app store that I download and I trust. Yeah, I want to allow them to have their incoming connections. Again, you can turn that off if you want more control or more security. And then you can individually add apps you want to allow or block by clicking the little plus icon uh, in the uh, in the settings there and then adding individual apps from the app list and then adjusting their settings you can also uh, explicitly block apps using that feature so you can say hey I want this app specifically not to have any incoming connections to my system firewall go ahead and block that so that's how you play around with the settings uh, for your firewall and it, you know again if you do enable the firewall just be aware if you start to have any kind of network problems you have an app that uses network connectivity and it's behaving oddly or not doing what you might expect, it probably could be your firewall settings. And a good way to test that is just temporarily disable the firewall, see if it goes through. If it does, then go ahead and turn it back on and maybe do a little research, figure out what settings you need to adjust to allow that to do its work. Again, assuming you want it to do that. So uh, like I said, Rick, figured this out on his own, which is always really great. But again, everybody might not be familiar with these settings. And so hopefully, uh, if you've run into problems with the uh, firewall, or maybe you've just never even tried the firewall before, this gives you some uh, some ideas and information to uh, do that. And then finally, in the show for this week, I received an email from Martin, who was having an issue with his super duper backups getting stuck at about 20,000 files when they were doing a smart update to an external hard drive. Now, he emailed me, and in his troubleshooting, he said he had tried to use different drives uh, and was having the same problem. He tried changing USB cord, did restarting, all the basic troubleshooting that you might expect one to do if you're having trouble with your backups, and he said absolutely nothing worked. Well, then he followed up and contacted Super Duper support, and they recommended that he checked to see if he had XSMD worker files on his system and um, noted that if there were a lot of them, that might be the source of his problem and he would need to clear those out. But he emailed me because he said, hey, is this a really good idea? You know, is what they're recommending the right thing to do? and um you know super duper those guys are pretty smart dave over there uh he kind of knows what he's doing and so if he told you this is the what might be the issue it's well worth checking out but i did want to dive into this a little bit more because i did a little bit more research um he had actually sent a link and i will link to this in the show notes at maccast.com with an article that talks about these md worker files and how to uh one see how many you have on your system and two how to potentially clear them out if you're having an issue. Um, But I wanted to get into it a little bit because this is something I had not run across. And it turns out um, that this may be also the source of some update problems or upgrade problems and The MD Worker and MD Worker files can also, if they get out of control, cause other issues on your system, just slowness and sluggishness and and things like that. So it's a good probably bit of knowledge for all of us to have in our our troubleshooting kind of archives. So something we might be able to come to. So first thing probably is, okay. what is MD Worker and exactly what does it do? well md worker is short for metadata metadata server worker there actually also is something called mds that's related to it that's short for metadata server and these two things together are basically the processes used by Spotlight to index your Mac, which allows you to do Spotlight searches. Um, and they can be pretty heavy. If you're actually moving and copying large numbers of files around your system, these processes can kick in and start indexing all that new content. So start prepping it. Now, most of the time, this isn't a problem. What'll happen is you'll see Activity Monitor, these processes, MD Worker, MDS ramping up and they'll show that they're using a lot of CPU but you really generally don't have to worry about it if everything is running smoothly because they're designed to be good OS citizens and they should yield their processes to other uh CPU processes you know like if you're running an app uh doing a lot of photoshop work or editing a video uh, it should give that processor over to you and wait for things to become idle and then it will kick in. So it's designed to kind of run in the background. Yes, it'll look like it's consuming maybe a lot of CPU, but it it is not going to be competing with your other applications. Again, that's when it's running like it's supposed to. So sometimes, though, things can go bad and it can misbehave and it might crash or lock up and, and that can start to give you issues. And as a matter of fact, recently, some folks discovered that when they tried to upgrade to Big Sur, they found that the update would fail and then get stuck with a never-ending progress bar. So you wouldn't be able to run your operating system update. And for some reason, they found that users impacted with this bug had a lot of these MD Worker files tens of thousands of them, if not millions of these data files in their system. And that was what was actually causing the issue. Now, this problem has been fixed in both the Monterey 12.1 and the Big Sur 11.6.2 full installers. Um, So Apple has resolved it, but still uh, it can be a problem for users of older operating systems. And it sounds like uh, it can be a problem for uh, super duper. So like I said, Martin had sent in this uh, email to super duper support, and they sent him this link um, to mrmacintosh.com that describes this issue as it relates to the Big Sur update. But they were also recommending that Martin actually run these commands to see, hey, do I have a bunch of these MD worker files? And then if I do uh, run some other commands to clean them out, and all the commands are in this article. Uh, I will have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. So if you want to check your system, uh, the commands will be in there. Just head to the website and uh, click the link. But basically what it comes down to is there are some terminal commands in that article that you can run to one, see how many MD worker files you might have on your system, and two, to clear those files out. Now, when you run the command from the terminal to see how many files you have on your system, typically that number should be really low. It should be 20 to 400 of these MD worker files. And actually, when I ran it on my Mac, I had zero. So I have a feeling zero is the ideal. I think those are only temporary files. They're only supposed to be around for a little bit. And likely what is happening is if you're having a problem with your spotlight and things are crashing, those files are getting left behind, not getting cleaned up. And then I would assume with Super Duper, maybe... Just the fact that there's so many files there is just slowing down the super duper system or causing it to literally stop running, uh, which was probably or could be what's happening in Martin's case. And so if you do find that there's excessive files there, and again, we're talking like 20,000 files, 50,000 files, there were some reports of people having 2 million of these files. Um, That same article has instructions for how to remove those directories and get things cleaned up, and hopefully that will resolve some of your issues. And I hope, Martin, that is what's going on with your system, and it's a quick and easy fix, but let us know how it works out. If that's not what it turns out to be, I'd be curious to find out what exactly is going on. But you know, like I said, Dave and super duper support, they tend to be really, really good and on the spot. One of the reasons I love that software. Of course, there's always the alternative of carbon copy cloner. So you could try that uh, if you still continue to have problems that you can't get resolved. But I would start with uh, with this and it will likely resolve your issue. But let us know and I will follow up if um, there's additional information on a future episode of the Mac cast. But with that, that is going to do it for the episode or for the show for this week, rather. I guess it's the episode also. Uh, before I leave you, I do want to thank my show sponsor, Smile, makers of Text Expander. You can get more information and details on Text Expander by going to TextExpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the Maccast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C A C H E F L Y dot com, and all advertising on the Maccast is handled by Backbeat Media. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269-281. Mac MacIm9, and you can leave a voicemail there. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash MacCast, or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But with that, that is going to do it for now. Until next time. I will talk to you all again real soon.